Good morning to everybody. So over the past nine months or so, we've been in the book of Jeremiah. We took a little bit of a break um, to do vision work past couple, the past month in January. Last week, uh, Pastor Jay talked about Jeremiah among the prophets, which was a really good word, um, and how Jeremiah, this prophet, interacted with the false prophets that were around. How do we tell true prophets from false prophets? good fruit from bad fruit kind of stuff. Today we're going to be taking two other offices of uh, the Old Testament, but of the church, um, the priests and the kings. And we're going to just briefly touch on a couple stories of Jeremiah's interaction among the priests and the kings today. Um, It's important that we realize that um, the reason that we're spending time looking at Jeremiah with these three specific offices, the prophet, priest, and the king, is because these were really important leadership places in the Old Testament. These were insanely important in the Old Testament. These were the anointed offices, so both kings and priests, and as well as prophets, were anointed to do their jobs, their callings. And so these, this anointing kind of gave this idea of consecration, the set-apartness that you are the people that need to lead the people of God. And, of course, because of sin and our transgressions and everything else, even the best leaders fall all the time, and we still see that today. However, in the Old Testament, there were all these prophecies about this one that was coming, the Messiah. And the Messiah means what? Does anybody know what, remember what the Messiah means? The anointed one. Is that on the screen? Yeah. You guys are smart. Means the anointed one. And so where all of these other um, people throughout the ages have failed um, in, these different, in these three different offices, there was this prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus, that was coming, and he was going to fulfill all of those anointing offices. He was going to be the anointed one. And so this was kind of a, a theme that was picked up, especially at the Reformation, thinking about Christ as a prophet, priest, and king, and we've touched on it a little bit in um, 1 John. But I also want to take just a brief moment before we look at the stories and think about this a little bit more. If you take your bulletin out, on the back you're going to see a quote from a 17th century theologian from Geneva. uh, Where's Geneva? Switzerland? Yeah, it's the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Tertini. Tertini. That's kind of Italian. I don't know how to say it. Tertini. That's perfect French. This is a good French accent. So this is what he had to say in thinking about the office of Christ, about Jesus uh, fulfilling all of these roles. The office of Christ is nothing other than a mediation between God and humanity, which he was sent into the world by the Father and anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out. It embraces all that Christ was required to achieve during his mission and calling in relation to an offended God and offending humanity reconciling and uniting them to each other. The mediatorial, 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 how do you say that, Jake? Mediatorial office of Christ is distributed among three functions, which are individual parts of it, the prophetic, priestly, and kingly. Christ sustained these together rather than separately, something which he alone was able to do. For what would, in the case of other people, be divided on account of their weakness are united in Christ on account of his supreme perfection, his supreme perfection. So this really elevates who the Messiah is and who Jesus Christ is, is that he's not just prophet, he's not just priest, he's not just king, he's all of these. He is the Messiah. 
He is the anointed one. And so um, Teratini kept going, and he kind of thought about this a little bit more. And these words that are on the screen, they're not my words at all. They are his words. But this is something good to um, consider as far as how sin affects us, as far as how Christ um, deals with our sin, and also, if you want to think about it, how do we, as the body of Christ, help to also mediate the gospel of reconciliation to the world around us? So think about it this way. The Spirit of Christ desires to bring his anointed mediation. You know, he desires, he's not stingy with it. He doesn't just want to sit with all of these, his supremeness, and be by himself and be like, let the people take care of themselves. Rather, that he is a God that is intimate with the world and with the people. So as we go through each of these three offices, consider these two questions. Consider which of the anointed offices are you primarily in need of right now? Now, we don't want to divide Christ and have him be here and then there and then over there. But he also comes to us in different seasons and different ways and mediates his gospel and his healing and his words to us in different ways. So what, as we hear about these offices, how do you feel like, what need of that mediation of Christ do you need in your current season of life? But then also, too, which of these anointed offices are you more drawn to in order to be a minister of that mediation. In 1 John, uh, it talks about how we share in his anointing because he is the head of the church and he is the anointed one. We also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have this anointing in us as the body. And so there's this question about how do we rebuild and how do we renew and how do we repair the relationships both that we're in and in the world around us. So we're not just thinking about what do I need, which we do need to ask that. What do I need from Christ? But also, as his grace and love comes to us, how can I minister to the person sitting next to me here? How can I minister to the people that I go to at uh, Cedar Crest High School? How can I minister to the people that uh, are at work or at YWAM or just on the street? What might God be calling Cornerstone? How might God be calling Cornerstone to mediate his gospel and his truth and his healing? So, Teratini, everybody say that with me so I don't feel like a jerk. Teratini, good. He said this about sin and about the offices. First, ignorance is healed through the prophetic office. So, Teratini would say that ignorance is one of three parts of sin. One of three parts of sin. Ignorance is healed through the prophetic office. The prophetic light scatters the darkness of error. The prophet shows God to us. The prophet illuminates the mind by the spirit of enlightenment. And this is important too as we think about the prophets, priests, and kings in Jeremiah. Why? Because in Jeremiah 2.8 or 2.18, it talks about how these different people, these different offices were not fulfilling their God-given design. Instead of being uh, an office that was consecrated and set apart so that they could minister to the people in the land around them to help them flourish, what ended up happening is they became like a, a desecrated anointing where it wasn't flourishing that they were providing for the people and for the land, but it was actually a withering of life. Over time, the sapping out of life rather than a giving of life, rather than being, Jim, remember, conduit, favorite word, we like to share that word, conduit, of God's grace and love. Rather than doing that, they were actually sapping out. And so it says in Jeremiah 2.8, you know, the prophets prophesied by another God and went after things that were worthless. 
And so it's not just that the prophets show us God, it's what God are they actually showing us, right? Just because you put a name out there doesn't mean that it's actually Yahweh. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the Holy Spirit. And so the prophets of the land in Jeremiah at that time, they were prophesying by another God altogether. They weren't creating light. They were actually causing confusion because they were saying things that were not coming directly from the Lord. So ignorance is healed through the prophetic office. Next, guilt. So uh, Tarantino would say the second part of uh, sin is guilt. Guilt is healed through, through, through. I mean, it's really healed through. That was a mistake. Guilt is healed through the priestly office. The merit of the priest removes the guilt and obtains reconciliation for us. The priest leads us to God. The priest soothes the heart and conscience by the spirit of consolation. But Jeremiah speaks out to the priests of the land too, saying that the priests did not actually ask, where is the Lord? They did not handle the law. They did not guard knowledge and they did not know me. And one of the big things that both prophets and priests did in the time of Jeremiah, they preached peace when there was no peace. And so any kind of consolation that comes out of a falsehood, any kind of consolation and comfort that comes out of uh, lies rather than the truth is no consolation at all. It's just a facade. It's just a structure that is, is, it's a straw man. It's a house of cards that's going to be knocked down because it's not actually the truth of what's going on in the land, in the people of God at that time. But when Christ comes, he doesn't say that we haven't sinned. He doesn't say that, hey, you're fine on your own. Let me just teach you a couple things. No, he actually provides for himself like we celebrated this sacrifice, this obedience to the Father, this place of wanting to reconcile God and man, the holy God with us sinful people. And he doesn't negate sin. He doesn't say that you haven't transgressed, you're fine. No, our sin runs deep. So much so that a lot of times the sin that we partake in isn't even sin that we know of. And yet Christ comes both in his prophetic office to come and teach us, to shed light on who God is, and also in his priestly office you know, removing that guilt that is actually there as we humbly turn to him and acknowledge that stuff and repent. And the merit of this priest is so much more than the merit of the priests in Jeremiah, right? Because this priest, Jesus Christ, was whole. He was secure. He was perfect. He had to make a sacrifice once. We don't have to come here. We're not, we don't come here to, to necessarily get right with God every single week. That's not the purpose of church. We are made right in Christ Jesus already. And so to receive that and take that in. And yeah, Ash Wednesday's coming up. Vespers is coming up. We struggle with sin and temptation and everything else. And we can't turn a blind eye to that. But we also don't want to be ignorant of the grace and what Christ provides in him reconciling us to the Father by his blood. We want to look sin in the face. And we want to also say, yep. And then gaze at Christ and gaze at Jesus and realize what he has done and can do as far as removal of that sin. Guilt is healed through the priestly office. Last one, oppression and bondage is healed through the kingly office. Oppression and bondage is healed through the kingly office. The power of the king takes away the bondage of sin and death. The king joins us together with God and glorifies us with him. The king subdues rebellious inclinations by the spirit of sanctification by the spirit of making us clean in the very practical matters of our life. So it's not only this issue with my heart, 
which is where things start, or with my mind, but it's also how am I living out my life? How am I living out my faith? I can believe certain things, but yet is there any fruit from that? And the kingly office helps to put a, a life in order. There's chaos amongst things. And the kingly office comes and puts things in order. Compare that to um, the office of King Zedekiah in Jeremiah. It says, and again, Jeremiah 2.8, that the kings transgressed against God. They transgressed against God. You can't, um, if, if, you're, if you're transgressing against God, you're not going to be able to set things right for somebody else. Right? And so the kings were not turning towards Yahweh as their one true God, but the kings in Jeremiah were rather trying to figure out how to politically uh, be prosperous. And if that political power to be prosperous meant that they were going to worship other gods, so be it. We'll keep, we'll keep Yahweh on the side because, yeah, he is our God, but there's also all these other gods. And depending on what we want to hear about our political power, we'll listen to him. If he gives us something that soothes us, something that we want to hear, great. If he doesn't, well, then we're going to turn to another god. And so the, the kings transgressed against um, God in Jeremiah. So with that being said, I want to ask the same questions again. So if the Spirit of Christ wants to and desires to bring his anointed mediation, which of the anointed offices are you primarily in need of right now? You know, Jim, Marcus, Charles, Lori, Justin. Where am I in need of Christ's mediation right now in the Spirit for that to, to come through? And then also, which of the anointed offices, as you listen to them, which one kind of piqued your interest as far as, you know, I feel like I'm called to such and such, and that kind of fits in with this anointed office. And what does that mean more so for us as Cornerstone, us as the church, not just here, but in the region, to be mediators of the gospel and the spirit of Christ? Everybody got the answers to all those? You good? Let's move on then to the text. So Jeremiah chapter 20. So that was an overview of prophet, priest, and king and why these are important that we're going over these. And so I'm going to share three brief stories of Jeremiah among uh, some prophets and, or some priests and some government leaders. So in chapter 20, what we have here is that we have Prashur, who is the priest. He was the priest of the day. And he heard what Jeremiah was saying, and he didn't like what Jeremiah was saying. So you have this priest that is supposed to be taking care of the people, and he thinks he's taking care of the people. So as you hear this story, you have to realize that it's not necessarily at this point that the priest is trying to get revenge on Jeremiah. There is a little bit of that in, in the text, and especially from um, Jeremiah's hometown, but it's more like he just doesn't believe Jeremiah. And so what are the ways that if a prophet is saying something that you don't believe is true, how do you make him shut up? How do you make him, you know, how do you put pressure on him so that he quiets down and stops saying that the, thing, the things that he says? And so Pashur the priest, in verse 1, was uh, one of the chief officers in the house of the Lord. And he heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. What were these things? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is in verse 15 up above in, in chapter 19, Behold, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns all the disaster that I pronounced against it because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. And so, Pashur the priest is like, we have not stiffened our neck. 
We're not refusing. We have these prophets over here that are saying stuff all the time, and we're listening to them. We're listening to the word of the Lord. It's just not your word of the Lord, Jeremiah. Okay, so we're going to listen to them. We're not going to listen to you. So what does Pashur do in verse 2? He takes and he beats Jeremiah and he puts him in uh, stocks. Not socks, stocks. Thank you, Naomi. The, the, the wife laughed at that one. That means it was a really good joke. <laughs> and so stocks, um, excuse any inappropriate gestures I'm about to do. Um, stocks back in that day weren't like the pirate stocks where... Um, <laughs> pretend there's a board here and I would have a, uh, my hand in here and a hand in here. There'd be a board there. I have to make sure I don't fall over. And then my feet would also be like that. And so I would be s- sitting like this all day. There would be this board that would be holding me and my head would also be leaned forward. My head would be in a stock also. That's actually not the stocks that they had during um, uh, Israel's time. Their stocks were more so, um, if you can imagine, I'm on the ground and I put my head or my hands above my head. Pretend there's a board that is basically tied or my hands fit through that is above my, my head. And then there's a frame. Imagine a door frame around my body. And my feet are also in kind of these locks, these stocks. And then there's a, a rope and a chain tied around my waist to the two corners. So I can't, I can't necessarily even move that much left and right. But rather, I'm Jeremiah. And I've just been beaten, probably on the back. And I'm put on my back, which is going to be painful. And I'm, where else am I put? According to the text, I'm put at the Benjamin Gate of the Temple. And this was the place where um, legal proceedings would happen. And I'm here for, the text doesn't say how long, but let's say I'm even here for 24 hours. I'm just here contemplating, looking up at the sky. Not really like I can turn my head. People are laughing at me. People are mocking me. In fact, later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah gets really mad at God in, his, in one of his confessions down in uh, verse 7. And he says that, you know, you have basically made me a laughing stock. I have come here to give the word of the Lord, and what ends up happening is I'm put in these, in these stocks, and I'm made fun of, and I'm beaten, all because of trying to tell the truth. So the next day then, Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, and then Jeremiah prophesied to Pashur. And you have to remember, um, Pashur is a person, but he's also a representative. What is he a representative of? He's a representative of the temple, and of the city, because he's the lead officer there. And so he says, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. So he changes his name. Pashur is kind of a weird, they're not exactly sure where it comes from, but it could mean glorious. It could mean noble. It could mean a place of of refuge even. And he's saying that your name is no longer Pashur. It is not glorious or noble or liberated, but rather it is terror on every side. And just as the king and the priests and Jerusalem and the temple itself were supposed to be this place of shalom, it is now going to turn into a place of chaos. They shall fall by the sword, you, yourself, and your friends, by the sword of their enemies when you look on. And I will give all of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry the captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. And this is the first place Even though we know it, also try to put yourself in this place. This is the first place where Jeremiah actually names the enemy. He's been saying previous to this that the enemy is going to come from the north. It's the enemy from the north that is going to come. But it's a lot different when you actually name something, right? You can take this con, 
uh, or abstract idea, like, I have a disease. I don't know what that disease is. And it becomes more real when I figure out what that disease is, when that disease is actually named. Like, it becomes almost weightier and heavier. So it's not just this abstract, the foe of the north is going to come and take you over now. What it is, rather, is saying, no, Babylon, this kingdom that is just wreaking havoc on the Assyrians to the north is going to be the end of you, basically. That Babylon is going to come down because of your wickedness and your stiff-neckedness, and they are going to be the ones that destroy you. So Jeremiah is pretty fired up in this. And it's not that he's necessarily using his own words, but he's saying to this priest, I've been trying to tell you what's actually going on. You beat me and locked me up, which would have been what he should have done if he was a liar and he was a false prophet. And yet this stuff is coming out. And so he prophesies against Pashur, the priest, saying that you're not going to escape and all those that you know and love are going to be surrounded by terror. Later in chapter 20, like I said, um, Jeremiah kind of goes off a little bit and he goes and he talks about he's a laughing stock. He's a laughing stock to uh, the people, uh, to the priests, to all the anointed uh, leaders in that time. But yet he still says this thing, you know, that you will be a terror. There will be terror on every single side of you that's going to come against you. And the Lord will not rely up. God's people are not safe. And you need to let them know that. Chapter 21, another story. We have another priest. Um, we also have King Zedekiah here. There is a different Pashur here, which is not the same Pashur as in verse 20 as because of his uh, chronology and his father's name. So this would happen, the first story, chapter 20, would have happened before Babylon actually came. Basically saying there's going to be a terror on every side. Babylon's going to come and surround you. Now, chronologically speaking, we are probably a step removed. There's probably been one attack on Jerusalem, and now King Zedekiah, the king that is in there, is like, maybe Jeremiah actually has something here. You know, there's this, we're not destroyed, we're not uh, desolated, we're not brought to nothing, as Jeremiah was saying, but maybe there's something here. So basically, a priest and some of the officials and Zedekiah go and ask, hey, maybe the Lord will show us his good deeds again. Maybe he will show his, his great hand Maybe he will show. That's when that light stuff, Luke. When that stuff happens, it's always weird to me. It's always like, so what's happening over in that in that corner? Is there something? The lights go on and off here, and the light just went off over there. And I saw them being like, "What's going on?" It's okay though. It's not. It's not. It's not a word of the Lord towards you. Just so you know. Um. And so Zedekiah's like, "What's going on? Maybe, maybe we can get something. Maybe we can hear something good. Maybe God will rescue us out of this." And so they ask Jeremiah, "What does the Lord say?" And Jeremiah, via God, God, via Jeremiah, uses all of this Exodus language, right? One of the biggest things in the history of God's people was the Exodus, was being brought out of Egypt by God's strong hand, fighting against the Egyptians, taking them down. You know, strong hand and outstretched arm, I will rescue my people in the Exodus. Except all of this is now inverted. He doesn't use Exodus language. He uses exile language. And so instead of saying the fact that um, I'm going to come and rescue you, he says basically the exact opposite. That God says, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. I will do this. 
And so this Exodus language that is happening, he's completely inverting it. And if that's such a part of, the, of Judah and Israel's story, that they're like starting to hear this language, and they're like, yes, God's going to take our weapons and make them prosper. But the text actually says, I'm going to take the weapons that you're pointing out there, and I'm going to turn them back on yourself. And Babylon is no longer going to be a terror on the outside. It's going to be a terror in the midst of it. And this is the word of the Lord. You wanted to hear the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Zedekiah didn't like that for some reason. The priests didn't like that for some reason. And yet that is what was going to happen. So fast forward, who knows, chronologically, let's say a couple years. Say we're actually towards the end of uh, Judah, Jerusalem. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 38. So first story, we had Jeremiah with the priests that put him in the stocks, that beat him. Jeremiah turned back on him and, and told him that his name was no longer glorious or noble. What was it rather? It was that there was going to be terror on every side. Zedekiah comes and he wants to hear a word of the Lord, but he wants to hear a word that would soothe them, that would build them up that would uh, make them stronger. And uh, J- Jeremiah uses Exodus language, but he uses it inversely to say that, no, it's not that the Lord is going to rescue you. It's actually the Lord's hand against you because of your sins and because of your unrepentant heart towards me. So now we get into probably between the second and the third raiding of Jerusalem. Again, there is a bunch of officials and also Zedekiah that's part of this story. And Jeremiah is basically saying the same thing, saying, Jerusalem will fall. You need to stop fighting this battle. You're just going to cause more sin and more death, and you're putting the people's lives in danger. So what ends up happening then is that one of the officials says to Zedekiah, hey, Zedekiah, we need to get rid of this guy. He is not encouraging the troops. He is not um, putting courage into the military forces. He's doing the opposite. Our men are weakening. We're not holding the fort like we should be holding because this guy is going around and saying these words. And so Zedekiah's like, do whatever you want with him. And so they decide to put him in a cistern, in a well. And they throw him down here, but this well is empty. This well is dry. And so when Zedekiah, or sorry, Jeremiah gets down there, it's not that he's floating in water, but it says that he's stuck in the mud. And now so, you know, many years before he was, Um, in this place of stocks on his back looking up, not really able to do anything, just looking up in the heavens like, what's going on? I'm trying, the, the word of the Lord is burning in my bones and I'm trying to get it out and help the people and yet they will not listen to me. And then many years later, where is he? He's at the bottom of a well, his feet are stuck in mud and it seems like the word of the Lord is just going to perish at that spot. It's just going to perish there. And so Jeremiah's hard calling of what was going on is really hitting him. And any time in our life when these things happen, um, there's just a questioning of like, what is going on? Is God real? Am I full of junk? Am I full of crap? Am I really hearing from the Lord? Just like we kind of explored last week with uh, the Lord's voice speaking to us. Is this worth it? I was beat. I was put, people are making fun of me. I'm now at the bottom of the well. I'm in, you know, knee deep in mud. It smells down here. There's no toilets down there. It's nasty. 
I'm going to starve to death. What is going on? Is anybody listening? Is anybody trying to break the silence of the false prophets and have the word of the Lord come through? And so as I was thinking about Jeremiah, I thought obviously about Simon and Garfunkel, right? And I thought about the song, Song of Silence. And it's this song that, um, you know, I don't know what the actual interpretation is, but I like started imagining Jeremiah being at the bottom of this well, looking up, thinking about the city, thinking about what's going on. Are people listening? Is all that I'm doing in vain? What's going on? And then the angelic presence of Simon and Garfunkel show up and they start to play a song. Is the audio ready? And part of uh, the, the, the verse that stood out to me most was this. It says, Fool said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you and take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells in the cisterns of silence. So let's lower the lights and listen to the song. Imagine Jeremiah in the mud. Hello darkness, my old friend I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and damp When my eyes were stared By the flash of a neon light It split the night Touch the sound of silence And in the naked light I saw Ten thousand people, maybe more People talking without speaking People hearing without listening People writing songs That voices no one dared disturb the sound of silence. Fool said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words, like silent raindrops, fell and echoed the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning. In the words that it was forming 
And the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. And so obviously there's a big uh, cultural distance between Jeremiah and Simon and Garfunkel. But even some of those words there about where the writings of the prophets are actually found, about being, you know, people hearing the words but not really hearing the words, about the gods that they made, that they bowed down to. So Jeremiah is there, and he's probably thinking this is the end of his life. But then this character comes out of nowhere in the story in Jeremiah 30, 38, uh, verse 7. He's an Ethiopian that's part of uh, the king's entourage, so to speak, and this Ethiopian goes to uh, the king Zedekiah, and he's like, this is an evil thing these men have done by putting Jeremiah in the cistern. Let me take 30 or three men, depending on the translation that you have, and go and rescue him. And Zedekiah's like, sure, do whatever you want. And this really shows um, Zedekiah's kind of oddity, that he has no power right now. Whatever is brought before him as a king, he's just like, whatever. Do whatever you want. At first, they wanted, he, people came to Zedekiah saying, hey, can we put this guy in the cistern? Do whatever you want. And now somebody else, you know, a couple days later, is like, we need to get him out because it's evil. Yeah, do whatever you want. And so there's this power that the king is supposed to have, especially in his anointed office, that is completely gone. That he can't actually help people out of oppression and bondage because he's in oppression and bondage. And he's not willing to actually hear the one voice that can help to relieve him from that. So the Ethiopian goes into the king's quarters and he gets rags of all kinds out of the wardrobe and they go into the cistern and they lower down these rags and these ropes and they bring him up. And Jeremiah is quote-unquote safe again, but Jeremiah and Zedekiah want to talk. And so Zedekiah is like, so did anything change down there? Do you have any kind of new revelation from the Lord? Is anything different than when you went down? And, Zedek, and Jeremiah says, no. And he warns Zedekiah. He's telling Zedekiah, you need to surrender. You need to surrender to the Babylonians. And if you don't, you will die. In fact, what the Lord told me while I was stuck in the mud down there is that you are going to be stuck in the mud. If you trust in anybody else to try to do some kind of um, revolt against Babylon, They're going to turn their backs on you and you're going to end up dead, killed. Your eyes are going to be gouged out, all this other stuff. But Zedekiah doesn't listen. In fact, he tells Jeremiah, don't tell anybody. If people come and tell you what we talked about, don't tell them, okay? Because I'm going to figure this out on my own. Just don't tell them what you said to me because I don't want them to get suspicious that I'm actually maybe thinking about doing something different. And Zedekiah doesn't do anything different. But the words that um, Jeremiah brought to Zedekiah, he also brought to the people. Team, you guys can come back up, worship team. Flip back to Jeremiah 21. So we started the service today for communion reading uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which I want to touch on in a second in a different way, in a slightly different way. But here's the thing that really stuck out to me as I'm looking at um, these texts in Jeremiah's 
interaction between the priests and the kings. So the word of the Lord comes to the people then. Very similar word that came to King Zedekiah. So verse 8, chapter 21, verse 8. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Behold, cornerstone, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And if we were to stop there, we'd be like, well, of course, we want life. Right? We, like, why, wouldn't, why would we choose death? Okay, prophecy ended. Chapter ended. We don't have to go on from there. But yet in this scenario, I'm not saying this is for us now or for any of us specifically, but it's out there. It continues. So he says, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians, he who goes out and surrenders to the enemy, who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I, the Lord, have set my face against the city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hands of the king of, the, of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And I think this really gets to the heart and the emotive response of surrender, right? Because it's easy to surrender to something where it's like, yeah, this is, this is bad, and this is better. And that's kind of the case here, but it's not like it's good and bad. Let's surrender to the good thing. It's surrendering to the enemy. You're going to leave your home. You're going to uh, get your life, but you're going to come under these other customs. You're going to go to a place far away. Who knows, part of your family are going to be split, split up. But yet you're going to have life there. And there's a way of life and a way of death. But will we choose a way of life when it's so, there's so much surrender involved? Will we choose a way of life when that surrender means that we have to lay down everything that we've known in order to actually follow the word of the Lord into a foreign land, into a different territory? Surrendering to our enemies. Like, give me the surrender where everything's good and prosperous and everything. Like, don't give me this, the surrendering where I have to, it has to be to the ones that are terrorizing me, to the ones that I hate, to the ones that are trying to kill me. Are you really, God, telling me to surrender to them? And the word of the Lord's clear, yes. Because I do want life for you, and we see that later in chapter 29. But right now I'm against this place in the city, and you have a choice between life and death. You can stay here and be stubborn, or you can surrender to the enemy and have life. But that doesn't really compute, at least in my mind. Surrendering to the enemy doesn't necessarily compute. That that's where you'll have the most life. It sounds like a cow- you're a coward, Justin. You're a coward, Jeremiah. You're a coward, you know, Zedekiah. You're surrendering. You need to stay and fight, not surrender. You need to be stubborn and steadfast and not surrender. And yet that's the word of the Lord to the people there. So take that principle and let's go to uh, Good Samaritan. The, to- the story Jesus tells, plain reading, which is what it means, is comparing the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan. Uh, a deplorable, one could say. One, uh, do you remember, where's Steph? Where'd Steph go? Oh, hey, what was the word that the translation said? It was like detested, a detested person. It was something like the detested um, Samaritan. Despised, despised Samaritan. And so the, the, 
the text at, at um, um, true uh, initial glance is the fact that, yeah, this guy, the Samaritan, who people hated, ended up being more kind and showed mercy to this, this man on the road than a priest and a Levite did, right? That's true. But then if we were just to think about that story and take it further, what if we put ourselves in the, in the place of the one that was saved? So let's say that I'm a Jewish man that is at odds with a Samaritan person. And these Samaritans weren't just at odds. Like a lot of the Samaritans, what they would do because they didn't believe that Jerusalem was uh, the presence of God or the temple of God, they would dig up dead bodies and they would drag them into the temple and break into the temple at night and throw the bodies in there to make the temple unclean. It's, it's almost like a, uh, a sorority, a, fr- uh, a, f- a frat joke or something to a really ugly degree. But it's like they're playing these games, these Samaritans. And so I wake up as a Jewish man that was beat up by some robbers and that was saved. And then I ask the innkeeper, so who helped me? Was, was, did, a, did a priest show up? Did a Levite show up? No, somebody you hate and that is against your culture actually showed you mercy. And at that moment, in that position, am I going to accept that and receive that? That God's mercy came through somebody that I hate. That God's mercy came through somebody that, not justifying anything that the uh, groups of the Samaritan, it's not to say that they were right. And yet somehow this sinner, this wicked you know, despised, detested Samaritan saved me. He paid for me. He took his wine and his oil and he bandaged me up. Am I going to actually receive the truth of that and the mercy of that, that there is none righteous, no, not one? And that the way that sometimes God ends up delivering us and saving us, Cornerstone, is from people that we would never expect to save us or people that are so below us that are detestable, that do ridiculous things that we would never do, and yet the mercy of God has come through them. And so the question for application today as we think about the fact of God is saying life is by surrendering to Babylon, and as we think about the, the man that was saved and delivered, is that if we desire and we're crying out for God's deliverance and salvation, whether great or small, are we also going to surrender to him the means and the methods in which he brings about that deliverance and that salvation? Or are we going to try to hang on to some kind of confidence in ourselves? Are we going to try to hold on to some kind of pride? And say that, you know what? I actually don't want to be delivered. I actually don't want to be saved. I don't want to taste salvation. Because I have an idea of what that looks like. And if it's not like that, I'm not doing it. And so that touches on the heart of what it means to surrender. That we need God not only, and we need Jesus not only in everything that he is, but in the way he brings these things to us. And so maybe there's like an enemy in your life, and yet is God trying to speak some kind of mercy through them right now? Again, I'm not saying that they're right. I'm not saying that their actions or their beliefs or anything like that but are we willing to hear a strong word of the Lord and his mercy coming through so that we see, oh, they're a lot like me in need of God's grace, in need of the grace of Jesus in their life and in my life, that I need that same amount, that I can receive mercy like that so I can show mercy like that to other people? Or are we going to hold on to something stubbornly rather than surrendering 
to what God's will would be. So as we close tonight, we're going to, tonight, that's the second time I said that. As we close today, we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. And as you think about these and as you're worshiping God in it, realize that it's like all of what he brings. It's not just the priestly part. It's not just the prophet part. It's not just the kingly part. The Messiah is whole and together. The Messiah is the anointed one. So yeah, he saves you from your sins. He saves me from my sins. Am I also um, walking with him and surrendering to that kingliness of him that he wants to put my life in a healthy, spirit-led way? Yeah, maybe I'm, I actually got my stuff all together. The, the Lord's kingship over me is great. And yet there's still this guilt and the shame that is deep buried within me. But I'm doing good things. I'm actually doing things for the kingdom. And yet do we want that priestly mediation from Christ? Do we want his words as the prophet spoken of, over us? Or are we just going to be listening without not really hearing or hearing without really listening? And he's worthy of all this because he, he proved it. I don't know of anybody else in my life that I know of that was raised from the dead, that was validated in such a way, that showed love in such a way, not only on the cross, but in his resurrection. And that happens, that spirit, that love, and that life of surrender happens in the smallest things in our life, and also big ones, changes of life sometimes. But whatever that surrender is, it's always good, even if it feels like death. He's saying, this is the way of life. Come to me. Yeah, you're burdened. There's this big weight on your shoulder. Let me take that, surrender it. Let me take that off of you. But it just might feel a lot different. It might look like death when it's actually life. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Um, Thank you, Jesus, for being the Messiah that um, comes to us, that speaks over us, um, that leads us to the Father, uh, that shows us how to live and all of that. Thank you for being the one that actually knows what's going on and help us as individuals and as cornerstone to surrender um, expectations. And it's hard, and we can say that from a pulpit. Yeah, we want to do that. I want to do that, God. And yet when the reality of that hits, may I please have ears to hear and a heart to understand what you're actually saying, God. So we pray that by your spirit, you would lead us and guide us in all the small, tangible things in life and also in any kind of paradigm shifts you're asking us to walk in in our day-to-day lives. So thank you. We worship you and praise you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Book of Jeremiah. Uh, really, it's a story of God speaking and people not thinking that's what God is saying. People having their own opinions, their own ideas, their own thoughts and perspectives, and then hearing what God is actually saying, but not thinking that's God. And I think it's a very practical book because that's kind of what we do. So let's receive the benediction today. I just love that song we sang, I need you every hour. Lord, um, as we go out today from Cornerstone and go back to our sort of Monday through Saturday lives, Lord, many things are going to happen. We are going to experience joys, sadness. We're going to give our opinions about things. We're going to hear other people's opinions. We're going to have stressful moments. There's going to be problems. There's going to be funny times. We're going to joke and laugh. But Lord, that song says that we need you every hour. 
Even when we think we're strong or we think we're right, we need you as much in that hour as when we're scratching our heads and saying, I don't know what to do. Isaiah the prophet said, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Lord, we need you every hour. It is your strength that helps us to make right decisions, to have right reactions and responses, to temper our opinions. Lord, don't, don't let us be like the, the Pharisee who would, who would think, oh, the Samaritan would never help. Don't let us be like the Israelites who said, oh, of course we shouldn't surrender. God, so I'm asking this week for all of us here at Cornerstone, as we go to our homes, I'm asking that you would just remind us over and over that we need you every hour. And I pray that your grace would come to us. I pray that your word would come to us. And that in different situations, Lord, we would respond as you want us to respond. It's not always the obvious thing that we think or that we want to do. But Lord, you will be faithful to do that. So I ask that your peace, your joy, your love, and your blessing would abide upon each one of us here at Cornerstone this morning and throughout this week. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Go in peace and be blessed.